All right. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to show that because I've been having tabletop discussions and roundtable discussions about what we do and how we start churches. And I think it's left some of you kind of scratching your heads. And so I wanted to just kind of give a little bit of a insight into that. We'll talk a little bit about that tonight, and then we'll dive back into Bible study together. But um, so for 47 years, this mission has been called Christian Associates International. Now, the truth is it didn't start with that name. It started with the name in 1968 on the campus of UCLA, which I think is somewhere in California, <laughs> with the name, listen, you ready for this? It was known as Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse. Who, who, yeah, it was awesome. It was the height of the hippie movement. It was a bunch of pot smoking UCLA students coming to know Jesus. And you know where they were? They were living communally together. They were living in this house called the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse. And that's where they came to know Christ. From that then came a church planning organization, Christian Associates International, and we've been planning churches uh, ever since then. So, you guys okay back there? Do I need to adjust this? We okay? All right, so uh, just in this last year, we decided to change our name for the next generation because now Christian Associates either sounds like a Christian legal society or maybe some faith-based accounting firm. or so, Not that there's anything wrong with those. That'd be fine to be either Christian lawyers or accountants, which is good, but we're not, so we decided to change our name to Communitas. And Communitas is a word that means faith community on mission together. So when you put toss on the end of the word, it means state of being. So there's unity and then there's unitas, so that's being in the state of unity. Um, community, and then there's a state of being in community with a purpose. That's communitas. So when we talk about our churches, we talk about them being faith communities with a purpose bigger than themselves. We talk about churches on mission together. And that's this collection of churches called Communitas International. We have 240 staff. 40% of them are not Americans. So they're Russians, they're French, they're Polish, they're Brazilian, they're Ecuadorian and Haitian. They are North American, Canadian, Scottish, English. And it just goes on. I'm just like, wow, I'm really glad to be a part of a group like this. But with that kind of diversity, it also requires a clear and consistent core identity. To be a part of this, there's a very basic set of theology, and then everything else is grace and diversity. There's a very basic set of values, then there's a lot of freedom to value other things that, that might differ from other folks in the group. Um, there's a set of practices that we're all a part of. We all practice hospitality, radical hospitality, opening our homes to the other. Um, there's other practices that are diverse in our group. So, 240 staff, we're in 22 countries, and we have 95 churches. And those churches are pretty different from one another. So we have everything from a traditional church, um, Crossroads, Geneva, Switzerland, Amsterdam, Den Haag or The Hague in the Netherlands, Spokane, Washington, Bakersfield, California. Those are all fairly traditional structural churches. They have a staff, they got a building, they got programs, they're doing a great job. But in Santa Barbara, the church that formed there decided that they would actually be better formed as a new monastic community. So they moved into a, basically a monastic order, not like in a convent, but like in homes, but they, they revolve around a rule of life together. So we got this crazy little monastic order going on over here, and we've got structural, traditional organized churches over here, and then we've got these house churches over here, and we've got neighbor churches over here with churches in a bunch of neighborhoods, and then they relate to each other. We have about six different ways of being church together. And what I love about being a part of this movement is that not one of them is right and the rest are wrong. They're all valid ways to be church in the world and to be church in context. Um, our church in Rise on Russia 
was built on top of a shared cause to care for Russian orphans. And in the pursuit of caring for Russian orphans, these Russian believers formed a church. Guess who's going to be the next leader of those Russian churches? It's going to be the orphans that grow up. So it's a pretty exciting way to form church around a And so I, I just wanted to share that with you because some of you are interested in going into kingdom work and kingdom ministry. I'd love for you to have a chance to explore what we're doing. And to do that, you would go to our website, which is still christianassociates.org. That will be changing eventually here. And you navigate to the contact us page and you just fill out some basic information. And then one of our friends will reach out to you and say, hey, tell us what's on your heart. We kind of custom make internships. If you have a good idea and mission and it fits within something we're doing, we'd like to hear it. We're not going to tell you what you have to do. Why don't you come tell us what God's put on your heart and we'll see if there's a fit for that. So that's kind of who we are. It's what we do. And it would be a privilege to um, see if God aligns our paths in in uh, ministry and mission together. So that's just a brief uh, clip on that. That uh, video is on our website if you'd like to go back and take a look at that um, in full. <laughs> See the end of it. The end's really exciting. I mean, it's really great. So missed the gripping end. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. So I want to address a conversation. Oh, the last thing was just my email address, I think. Um, Dudley at christianassociates.org. So that's I mean, I don't get into big, long theological uh, discussions on email. If you send me a three-page email about my theology over this week, I'm just going to go, oh, cool, send, you know. So, <laughs> you know, we won't do that, but if you want to talk about an idea or something you're thinking of mission, I'd love to hear from you. So, all right. Um, so, here's a pathway of coming into Christ and into the church that I think reflects a fairly traditional um, way of thinking. And I mentioned this this morning, that historically our evangelism methods and our evangelism strategies have anchored themselves in the concept of belief. It's studying apologetics. It's studying four spiritual laws. It's studying how to present the gospel in a clear and compelling way, but the avenue for accessing that person's heart is through their mind. And that's not bad. I can tell you that I've been through five or six different evangelism training courses. All of them anchor in what we believe and what somebody else believes. Even the, the evangelism training I did for reaching uh, people that are of a Muslim faith was about building a bridge intellectually between the Quran and the Bible and helping them see that Jesus was more than just a prophet and kind of walking them through mentally what they believe, what we believe, and where the connections are. Does that make sense to you guys? Then when somebody says yes to following Jesus, then we say, okay, come and belong with us. Come be a part of our community. Come join us because you're in. You believe with us, and now you can belong with us. And once you belong with us at church or whatever, then we'll get to work on your behavior which is about growing in your faith and becoming like Christ in your attitudes and your actions. It's the pathway of holiness. It's sanctification. It's all these wonderful theology words, which really ultimately mean something. They mean living like Jesus. And that's where we behave is over here. And it's almost like if you don't believe, then you have no business belonging and you sure aren't going to behave like Jesus if you don't believe in him. Well, I don't think that's true anymore. In fact, I can tell you that story after story after story of faith in Christ, some people are still coming to faith in Jesus through the avenue of believing. If you leave here saying that I badmouthed evangelism methods, then you didn't hear me right. And I will say, nope, that's not true. I'm not badmouthing any evangelism method at all because some people are ready intellectually, mentally to embrace the truth about Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. But more and more and more frequently, I'm hearing the stories of faith that are inverted through different pathways. Let's look at this other way of imagining this. If you overlap them and you basically consider the VIN in the middle, the overlap in the middle to be all three, 
believing, belonging, and behaving, then you ask, well, how did somebody get to the center? And like I said, it may very well be that the doorway into this community of faith believers or, or followers of Christ might have been through what they believed. Uh, this might have been, you know, this discussion between Jesus and, um, and John chapter 3 with, uh, with Nicodemus. It could have been the discussion, it could have been any, any of the discussions where Jesus presents a concept and he says, this is what you believe now and this is what I'm here to teach you. It could be Paul standing up in the in Athens and presenting intellectually to a crowd that was very much all about what you believed. However, this is not the only portal into faith and into Christian community. More and more, it's because people are being invited to belong. Come and participate with us in this thing called life. Let's share space together. Let's share hobbies together and interest. Let's share pursuits together. Maybe it's the pursuit of ending homelessness. Maybe it's the pursuit of human trafficking. It's not just Jesus followers that are involved in human trafficking issues. Uh, maybe we can share uh, a common love around athletics or around coffee or around sewing or whatever it might be. We have common interests so we can belong with each other. In the context of belonging, we form meaningful friendship with each other. And that's the story of Saeed. Can I ask you this question? If it took six months of living in Mike and Carol's house for Saeed to understand what it meant to follow Jesus, if it took six months of residential living together, how long would it have taken if Mike had just met with Saeed once a week for an hour? Stretch out six months of life-on-life -life living into weekly one-hour appointments, and Saeed probably would have died before he got to six months of residential living. Community says, you are welcome here. Come and enjoy our fellowship, and we're not going to demand that you believe what we believe before you can belong. That is a way people are coming to faith in Christ. And then the last thing is this idea of a portal through the avenue of behaving. And in behaving, we invite non-Christians to do distinctly Christ-like things, like serving, like blessing, like Janet making meals for other pregnant women. She began to behave like Jesus before she even really understood what it meant to believe in Jesus. So there's a movement, a volunteer movement going on in the world right now called Serve the City. And Serve the City is now in over 100 different cities around the world, and basically it's spearheaded by followers of Jesus to form service projects, volunteer opportunities that then the rest of the non-Christian world can come and be a part of. So it's Christians and non-Christians serving and doing good things side by side. When I met Kosmina, a Serbian believer, she said the way that she came to understand Jesus well, she got involved in a chance to do serve the city in Brussels, Belgium. And after serving week after week or month after month, Kosmina said, why are you doing this? I know why I'm doing this, but why are you doing this? And person after person talked about being inspired by the example of Jesus. That's when she decided to explore what it meant to follow Christ. Uh, that's the idea of, um, of Terrence that I mentioned earlier, the Cameroonian asylum seeker who was being served on his mattress day after day by Christians. And then they said, why don't you get up and help somebody else? He's like, okay, that feels pretty good. It doesn't have to be this kind of a linear way of thinking about life or about evangelism or about the gospel message. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this, discipleship of the future, discipleship of the future is not a program that you go through once a week for an hour with somebody. It might include that. Did you hear that? It might include meeting once a week for an hour. But discipleship of the future is an integrated whole life experience. It is an invitation to walk together. Here's what's changing my life at 50 years old. It's that I meet once a week with this 71-year-old guy named Peter. Peter. 
Yeah, we meet for about an hour and a half on Wednesday afternoons. But that's not the only time I see Peter. Pete and I are together probably three, four, five, six times a week. And here's the opportunity it affords. What we talked about on Wednesday, I see play out in real life on Thursday. If I didn't see it play out in real life on Thursday, I would just think it's just academic learning. Discipleship is not an academic exercise only. It is a life-to-life transfer of truth, of behavior, of invitation, of modeling, of mentoring. That doesn't just happen over coffee for an hour once a week. I don't know if this is resonating with you, but it may very well be that you've had both the chance to meet with somebody in, in discipleship, which is great. How much more valuable has it been to see that person live out what you've been talking about? It's powerful when you see it exemplified or modeled in front of you. When we form churches, we're basically drawing a circle around this and saying these are the three elements that are involved in being church together. It doesn't matter whether you have a building or not. If you have a building, great. If you don't have a building, at least make sure you got these three things. So I think the next slide shows this circle around this that at least gives an an indication of what does it mean to form a church around these three essential dynamics or elements. Now, I've used three other words. I want to show you how they fit. When we talk about believing, we're talking about communing with God together. This is what we do that's studying Scripture, it's praying, it's worshiping together, it's the ordinances, all those things that reflect that we walk toward Christ together. That is our believing element of being in church. But that's not all there is to it. There's also the belonging, which is community. It's vulnerable, it's risky, it's invasive, it's actually inconvenient. When you really want to live in community with others, you basically give up a lot of your own self-interest and rights. To be communal in our living is to say, it's not just about me and what I want. Forming meaningful community means going to the level of honest, transparent engagement. I, I was uh, listening to some of your stories, and yesterday I had a chance to have um, lunch with some of our international friends and was talking to Robin. Robin, where are you in the room? You here? Back here? And I'm not going to tell your story. Your story is yours to tell. But he described a pathway of his life that led deeper into darkness. And it wasn't until he risked opening his heart in community, exposing the darkness to the light, the light of fellowship and the light of Christ, that things really began to change. That's the kind of vulnerability that's involved in risky community that leads to life change. And then the third thing is this idea of behaving, and that is where we together, collectively, express the, the attributes of Christ in the world together uh, by how we treat each other. This is the John 13, 34, and 35, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you behave that way. The church, if nothing else, ought to think and care and act like Jesus in the world. Whatever else we're doing in this church, let's at least do this. Let's think and let's act, and let's care like Jesus in the world. If we can think and care and act like him, people are actually going to be drawn toward Christ. It's going to break down those barriers that say, if you call it church, I'm not interested. But if they see us behaving like Jesus, they're going to say, tell me more. How many of you came to faith in Christ partly through that kind of experience? In other words, you you were introduced to the ways of Christ through being around other Christians, and that caused you to say, I want to know more. Is that part of your story? Check it out. That's huge. That's about half the crowd in here. That's the idea of coming into faith through this avenue of belonging and community and learning and seeing how it's behaved as we think and we care and act like Jesus in the world. And honestly, folks, when I say this, I mean it with great sincerity. I love the church that is organized and is 
structured in a way that it, it's easy to understand and it's, there's clear pathways to connecting with it, but there's not a, a, a chance that everybody is going to want to come into that kind of a church experience. So I want to be a part of starting expressions of the church that go beyond that and play with that and experiment with that and see if whole life discipleship, integrated spirituality begins to really move Christianity into the spaces where people really live, at home, at school, in the classroom, on the sports field, intramurals, clubs, activities, Greek life. Can you move your faith into those spaces? Because if you can, Jesus is revealed there whether they come to your church thing or not. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, I just wanted to give kind of a, a snapshot of, of what we do and how that works. And the biblical underpinnings of all this is really beautiful. When you start looking at things like um, Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, and, and in it, there's this great promise that, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, Right? There's this communing with Jesus who's never going to leave us, but then there's also this impulse of mission into the world, go and make disciples. And it's, it's there together. In John chapter 20, Jesus has died and has been resurrected, but the believers are freaked out and they're locked in the upper room. Jesus shows up in their midst and that freaks them out even more because there he is. He just shows up in the room and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. Peace be with you. So he comes and he's, he's, and he's stepping back into their community, back into sharing fellowship with them. And then what does he say? He says, I have something for you. As the Father sent me into the world, I now send you. In the same way God the Father sent me to reveal his divine attributes, I now send you into the world. There's both the communing together peace and community, and then there's this impulse into the world that's mission. It happens over and over and over again in Scripture. When you look for these three elements, all of a sudden they start popping up everywhere. And I would just contend this. Whatever else church is, it ought to at least include these three essential elements of walking toward Christ together, walking in fellowship with one another, and walking into the world with the tangible love of Christ. All right, let's get into the uh, Bible study passage. I have a very simple story to relate to you that I think is another one of those um, questions of how you scripture. So John chapter 4, if you want to follow along. John chapter 4. Now, this is a uh, famous story that preachers preach on. And they use it in a lot of different ways. There are about seven different sermon points or focuses that are made out of this story because this is Jesus and what's known as the woman at the well, right? Jesus and the woman at the well. Now, I just want to introduce you to the story, and then I'm going to step back and ask, what's this really about? All right, so here we go. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea in the south and went back once more to Galilee in the north. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or the heat of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, uh, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then we hear that, you know, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans, much less women being associated with by a, a Jewish man. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God 
And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman says to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He said to her, go and call your husband and come back. She replied, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain here in Samaria, but you Jews claim that the place we are, are to worship is in Jerusalem. There were two temples. There was the temple in Samaria where the Samaritans worshiped, and there was the temple in Jerusalem where the Jews worshiped. And the big question was, which building was the right place of worship? Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain in your temple or in Jerusalem in our temple. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in no temple building. That's what he's saying right here. The time is coming when true worshipers are not going to be bound to a building located either in Samaria or in Jerusalem. Where will the true worshipers be found? The true worshipers will be found worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of the worshipers the Father seeks. In other words, it's not physically located, it's in the heart. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now, how many of you have heard this Bible story taught on and preached on? All right. Wow. A lot of you. What are some of the big points that come out of this passage? Like what are the themes that you've heard preachers preach on? This is an all play. What? All right, let's come back to that. That's awesome. What's another thing you've heard it talked about? Sorry? Love your enemies. Yeah, go to the other, which is the Jews going to the Samaritans. Excellent, because they didn't associate with each other. In fact, they hated each other. What else have you heard this talked about? What about the whole relationship thing, the husband thing? Yeah. Oh, God brings people together. Excellent. Well, yeah, what else? God comes and relates to people on their level because this is a Samaritan woman being related to by a Jewish man who is the Messiah, so he's coming to her level to have a conversation. The whole, uh, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now, has anybody heard a, a sermon on this where it talks about, you know, that relationships are like a well and you keep drawing from the same well, but it won't fill you up and yeah, yeah, that's one of the big points that they make. And then there's this whole idea that he has this word of knowledge so how did he know that she had five husbands and is living with somebody that's not her husband now? So some people talk about spiritual gifts, and this is Jesus showing a word of knowledge. How would he know that? Because he never met her before, except through divine revelation. People use this to talk about worship style, that you should just have excited song singing and worship in spirit. You should also have strong Bible teaching and worship in truth, and we should balance the strength of worshiping and the truth of God's Word with the emotion of worshiping Him and spirit, all kinds of things. This story has been used a hundred different ways. But let's go back to the beginning and what he shared at the, at the start. Look at this verse as, as it begins in John 4, verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. Uh, no, no, he didn't. In fact, no Jew would ever actually go from Judea to Galilee through Samaria. 
to go to Galilee, the Jews would go across the Jordan to the east side, travel up the east side of the Jordan River, cross back over into Galilee so they didn't have to set foot in Samaria. They never wanted to set foot in Samaria. And yet John 4, 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. Why? That's the question that leads us to a different understanding of this story. Why did he have to go through Samaria? And the answer is pretty simple, because God the Father had an agenda for the world, and Jesus needed to model the way for his followers. Look what happens just after this. John 4, 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But nobody asked him the question, what do you want or why are you talking with her? See, the disciples have learned that if they ask dumb questions, that they're going to feel dumb. So, <laughs> then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward Jesus. And then this whole food thing comes up and the disciples are trying to get him to eat more food. And he's like, look, dude, yeah, I've got food that's called doing the will of my father, all right? <laughs> Verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed for two more days. And then because of his words, many more became believers. And then they said to the woman... We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? It's because the Father wanted to reveal himself to the people of Sychar. Now, look at what Jesus did to accomplish that. The gospel is best conveyed through relationship. The gospel is transmitted across the kingdom synapse from life to life to life. If that was a religious leader of our day, you know what he would have done or she would have done? They would have called ahead or texted to the village of Sikar and said, I'm on the way, please get things ready. A powerful leader of any kind would prepare the people that he's coming. He didn't do that. Jesus did not send emissaries ahead to set up the bed and breakfast and to have the meal ready to go and to organize all the religious leaders at a luncheon and to have a big prayer gathering. He didn't do any of that. He did not announce his own arrival into Sychar. In fact, he chose the least likely person ever. Why am I telling you this story? We've been talking about investing your life in others, and here's what I think. I think that some of you are out there saying, yeah, I think that's a pretty good idea. In fact, I'm already doing that. I'm already investing my life in others. I think a lot of others of you out there saying, I don't think I'm up for that. I don't think I'm the right person for that. I don't think I'm that gifted. I don't think I have his skills or her skills or their talent. I think there are a lot of followers of Jesus who don't feel adequate to be the avenue through which Christ reveals himself to someone else. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I will say this. I've worked with university students long enough to know that the comparison game is a killer. And you look around and you say, I just don't, I don't measure up. And I bet as we've talked about investing your life in others, some of you have said, that's for the rock stars. That's not for me. The woman at the well changes that. This is a woman who was a complete social outcast. She was drawing water at the well in the middle of the day because nobody else was there at that time of the day. She didn't go in the cool of the morning when the other women went or in the cool of the evening when other folks would have been there. She carried her water jars out by herself at the, end of the, or at the middle of the day. This is a woman who broke all of the rules of religion by being married five times 
and then living with a man that wasn't her husband. She was likely regarded the, the local Sikar prostitute. This is a woman who bore shame, who bore ostracism, who was not a, in, included, who did not belong, even in her own village, who probably didn't have a lot of friends and who probably didn't have a lot of people that had any respect for her at all. You want to hear a bold statement? The first person recorded in the book of John as a missionary was a Samaritan woman. The first person commissioned to announce the arrival of Jesus in the kingdom of God anywhere in the narrative of John is this outcast prostitute reject substandard ostracized woman think about what happened when jesus revealed that he was the christ she dropped her water pots and she ran into town she no longer cared if people didn't want to hear from her she ran into town and told the village elders i think the christ has come they had enough reason to believe her that they came out to meet Jesus. They invited Jesus to stay for two more days, and he did. And in the context of staying those two days, they came to believe. Why didn't Jesus just go straight to them? Because the gospel is best conveyed through relationship. He shared it with her and sent her to tell them. And the her matters. Because she wasn't a religious leader. She wasn't credentialed. She wasn't trained. She wasn't included. She wasn't respected. She wasn't qualified. She wasn't learned, degreed, special. She wasn't any of those things. Do you feel like that sometimes? The ministry is in the hands of the people that are actually really competent, or they've studied a bunch of scripture, or they've got some kind of approval. Wrong. Yes, that may be true for some, but it wasn't true for her, and Jesus chose to announce the arrival of the kingdom of heaven through her, the least likely person in the village. She went running in not caring anymore what people thought about her, and persuaded the village elders to come out and meet him, and they did, and then they came to believe, and they even say, we no longer believe because of your testimony. We now believe because we've heard it ourselves. And they came to faith in Jesus. I, I want to I share this story with you because of two reasons. One, this is one of those classic narrative stories from Scripture that can be used in a lot of different ways, but it's really about God's heart for the nations, God's heart for the Samaritan people in this case, and how he chose to reveal himself and commission an outcast woman as the first missionary to go tell somebody. So when I talk about the whole hermeneutic thing, that this is a big storyline, that God is, has a plan and it's this arcing narrative this is another story that says, if you just read the small part, you're going to miss out on the big picture, which is that they had to go through Samaria so that Sikar could be reached. The second reason I wanted to tell you this story is because of that sense of inadequacy that a lot of Christians have, that I'm not the one that can tell somebody else about Jesus. So I was talking with some university students in, in Nebraska. It's a different state kind of east of here. You may have heard of it. It's kind of flat and doesn't have any mountains like this, but there's some cool people that live in Nebraska too. And I met a young college student named Carol. And I was talking about grace, talking about how God's blessing to us changes our life. She came up afterward and, and just said, I got to tell you my story. And she said, the best way to tell you my story is to show you. She pulled up her sleeve and she had burned with a curling iron five deep, scarred lines into her arm. She wasn't a cutter, but she was a self-harmer. 
And those five scars, she had named them from the damage of her life. And I wrote these down because I never want to forget what she said. She named them illegitimate, flawed, damaged, failure, and hopeless. She named her scars because that's how she felt. I'm going to pause and just ask you this question. Maybe you don't have physical scars, but have you named yourself something? Have you said damaged? Maybe not intelligent, slow, not gifted, unuseful, inadequate. Have you named yourself something based on your history, like worthless? Maybe you identify with Carol's scar in your own emotional way, maybe a physical way too. But here's what she said. Tonight, I understand that God's grace blesses me and he loves me regardless of my past. And she said, for the first time, I renamed my scars. Now I'm going to call them included, not illegitimate. Loved, not flawed. Being healed. I love that she said being healed, not damaged. Forgiven, not failure. And purposed, not, ho- not hopeless. Why do I tell you about Carol? The person who is most qualified to share the grace of Christ is the person who has deeply experienced the grace of Christ. The person who is best qualified to talk about the forgiveness of God is the person who through their own sinful choices have been found guilty and yet forgiven by God the person who is most qualified to talk about the patience of God is the person who has tasted and experienced the patience of God. Are you like the Samaritan woman in the sense that you don't feel like that God will use you to invest in the life of others? Because you're not. You're less than the other people around you. Wrong. Think about what you have experienced of the person and nature of Christ, and then ask yourself this question, who in my world needs to taste of that as well? Through me. Because of what I've received, who can I freely give that to? The the story of the woman at the well moves me on multiple levels, but maybe no more so than this one, that the least likely person is who Jesus said, you go tell them about me. And maybe that's how you feel too. The woman was embedded in Sikar. She lived there. She didn't leave. She was a part of that community, and I think that that's part of why her story mattered to them. Uh, she was a, an out, outcast, but they responded to her and they came out and they were blessed by that. I, I think that's part of this whole life community thing. So I just want to finish with this statement as we wrap up tonight. When you think about discipleship, think about it this way. The integrated life is a crucible for discipleship. The integrated life is the crucible. It's the place where discipleship really happens because you don't step out of your world in order to be discipled. Discipleship happens in the thick of your world. 
Discipleship happens when you have reason to be wall-eyed angry at someone and you want to get revenge. And the person next to you who knows Jesus says, maybe this is a chance to forgive. The, the whole life discipleship happens when you are in a group of people that are tempted to lie or cheat or, or, or do something that lacks integrity, and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or somebody else says, I'm not going to do that, and you learn from their example. Discipleship may include a one-hour meeting during a week, but whole life discipleship integrates spirituality into the warp of your day, the rhythm of your life, where it really matters. That is transformational. And I'd go so far as to say that's an important part of church. All right, that's where we're going to wrap up tonight. We're going to finish up tomorrow morning with some other thoughts about this. But um, uh, Neil, we're at 8.37, and we're, so we're doing okay on time, right? I'd like to do something a little unusual and just say, do you have any questions? I mean, is there something that comes up from this that you just want to say, all right, I don't really quite understand that, or um, can you clarify this or that? Yeah. Right. Does one of you have a curling iron he can borrow? Because we can hold this dude down, and man, we'll we'll brand the heck out of you, dude. It'll it'll you know you can name him and go. No. Um, listen, I I I totally identify with that. I don't have any catastrophic part of my story, really, um, and maybe you don't either. But all you have to do is sit and think on your depravity for a while and realize that maybe what you would say honestly is that I'm a pretty dang selfish guy, and I look out for my own interest all the time, and Christ has taught me how to be other-interested. So don't discount the ways that Christ has met you in your own story. Just be prepared to offer that to the next person that's being selfish or that's being self-interested or whatever it might be. Thanks for sharing that because I agree with you. Not everybody has a story like Carol's, but it doesn't mean you haven't encountered Christ or that you don't have anything to offer. Somebody else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you start churches in non-traditional settings, how do you know if what they're teaching is true or accurate or whatever? I think that's why whole life discipleship is vital, because if we detach Scripture study, c communing with God, the Scripture study from community, it's more likely that you end up with heresy. So I'm advocating that one of the rhythms, go back, uh, uh, Remington, if you would, to the, the three essentials. Um, I'm advocating that you don't study Scripture in a vacuum but you actually study Scripture in the context of community because I think that's part of the ensuring the DNA, the integrity of the, of the, of the truth message gets carried forward. Uh, anytime that you start the question of church with rules, are we following the right rules, you're bound to move toward legalism. Can I say that again? If your first concern, I'm not saying this is true of you, but if your first concern is are we following the rules, you are destined toward a legalistic version of church. The first question is, how do we all walk toward Christ together and walk in unity of fellowship with each other and walk into the world with his love? If you're doing that, it's almost this kind of a, it's almost a self-monitoring. It's almost a, yeah, it's a social monitoring. If you're familiar with this sociology concept of social and peer monitoring, um, and, and it's a way of making sure that what we're doing is consistent with the standard that we hold to. Um, in, in, our, in our organic faith communities, it really does happen that way where somebody's bringing an idea in, and a different idea isn't a threat. I mean, I co-led a Bible study on my street with a universalist. Is that okay to do that? Well, yeah, because by the time we were done, he was far less universalist. 
Praise God for that. If I had said, you can only lead a Bible study with me if you agree with me on all these points of theology, he would have never really got into studying this book about grace. We went through Max Lucado's book called In the Grip of Grace. And it was a risk to let Justin be a co-leader growing up universalist. He actually suggested ideas that were not biblical. And it sat there in the room. And I had a chance to say, wow, I really appreciate your perspective. Let's take a look at what it says in Scripture here, and then let's keep moving forward. By the time we finished our study together, Justin was far more committed to the concept of grace. So even in that kind of setting, studying Scripture in community together became a way that he moved toward more of that orthodoxy around a spiritual concept. Thanks for asking that. That's a pretty important point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On the when asked part. Yeah, so again, I, I, I think this is part of the reality of your generation more than it was mine. In my generation, starting with belief was perfectly fine. And take a look at the Billy Graham Crusades. Many, many people came to faith in Christ through believing, a testimony given to persuade them in belief. But you, you are growing up in a culture that has elevated tolerance, right? That it's not okay for you to say what you believe is right and what somebody else believes is wrong. At least society says that. That's true around the world as well, which is why the patiently waiting for someone to ask is often an avenue of building the trust before you share the gospel message. Is it always the way to do it? No. There may be times where you feel really prompted to just share your gospel story. Do it. There may be somebody that's ripe and ready like Saul was for Ananias. There's plenty of scriptural evidence for telling the gospel message at the right moment. Uh, The Ethiopian eunuch coming up with Philip, and Philip comes alongside and starts with the passage the Ethiopian was reading and explains the gospel, and he comes to faith in Christ. So um, there are times and places where starting with story is fine, Uh, but I think in an age of tolerance, you have to be really careful to not build walls by starting with belief. Yeah. One of you guys. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to understand that in your own journey, in your own life, that you sin and fall short and live with shame and guilt and you need forgiveness for that and that Jesus died in order to secure that and offer you grace and to extend to you mercy to take away the punishment you deserve and grace to give you the blessings you don't deserve, and that by putting your faith in that sacrifice that he did on the cross that you now have access to, peace with God, shalom, rightness with God, and rightness with others. I don't think that message of salvation has changed a bit. What does it mean to be saved? Is there something along the way that I said that would make you think that I don't buy into that, or is there, I mean, I, honestly, I'm, if, if, I, if you feel like I misrepresent kind of a pathway to salvation, um, I just, I'm glad you asked. Just be clear about it. That's awesome. Yeah. What else? So your, your specific question is around non-Christians belonging in our faith community, but then leading, right? Or giving them permission to influence the community? Yes. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, um, I think in my experience that the door is much wider open than it is closed uh, in terms of allowing them to practice rhythms of faith with us before they say yes to Jesus. Um, but I think where it comes down to a, a, a line in the sand between what a non-Christian would be invited to do versus being invited to observe would be in the area of, of elder leadership or in giving uh, Holy Spirit guidance to the community of faith. Um, so if somebody doesn't know Jesus, there's this present reality that they're leading without the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's where I think there's a question to say, do we want to entrust somebody that's not being guided internally by the Holy Spirit to influence our community like this? But I would go a lot further than just letting them serve in the parking lot as well. I mean, honestly, there there are a lot of things that non-Christians can do. Uh, In the serving category of behaving, they are champions of humanitarianism in the world that by behaving like Jesus under the banner of humanitarianism, they're actually closer to Jesus than you realize. Let them come and bring some of that goodwill toward others into our faith community. Yeah. Well, that's, your question assumes a formal process of membership. And I don't care Say it that way. I mean, the formal process of membership is good in some ways. Do you know why formal process of membership started? Have you ever heard of this transfer of letter thing? This is a funny story. This transfer of letter when you join a church and then you go to another church and there's this joining by transfer of letter and you become a member there. You know where that came from? This is really cool. In the Wild West, in the Wild West, bank robbers would rob or or jack the stagecoach, steal the money, go to the neighboring city or town and join the church to give the appearance of being an upstanding citizen and fool people. And they would get to know the town and the rhythms well enough to steal again and then go to the next town. It was such a problem that the church said, we need a way of verifying that you're a follower of Jesus in good standing from another town. So if you wanted to join and become a member of First Baptist OK Corral, you had to send a letter to First Baptist Tombstone, Arizona, that then said, Are you, is this person a member in good standing? And they said, No, they robbed our bank and, and stole all of our money. It goes back over there, assuming the Pony Express didn't get hijacked, and it gets to OK Corral, and they go, No, you're, you're not allowed to be a part of our church. So, one of the interesting things about the membership thing was it was fueled by monitoring sin and depravity at a time when they didn't have, you know, texting. So it's a totally different context. Now, I believe in covenant commitment. So when you talk about membership, there may be a formal process to join a church as a member, but really what I'm interested in is have we covenanted a relational commitment to one another? A contract is a legal commitment, A covenant is a relational commitment. And are we committed to to one another such that when things go pear shape and it goes bad, that we're going to work through it together under the banner of Christ? So the membership thing, would I let a non-Christian enter into a covenant relationship with my faith community? Well, to be in covenant relationship means that Christ is at the center. So I don't think that they would want to covenant with us on that until they said yes to Jesus. But everything else around being a part of it, it's pretty much a joy to invite them to participate. So I'm not at all making fun of the membership value. I'm just saying that what really holds value in it is what you're committing to each other. And that's in that area of covenant. Okay, let's have one more, yep. Yeah, well, thanks. Why don't I do that tomorrow? But, um, I, you know, I appreciate you asking. Um, really, that first night when I talked about, you know, going from cultural Christianity 
to personal Christianity to then purposeful Christianity. That's my story in three movements. If it's a symphony, you know, I don't know that kind of movement, that kind of movement. And so I just want to say that's really kind of where I've come from. But there are there are wipeout points in my story that I don't mind sharing with anybody. There are catastrophes that drove me to my knees. Um, seasons in the desert that just were horrible, um, that really brought my faith to life in new ways. But yeah, I'd be happy to share some of those with you as well. Um, let's wrap this up in prayer. And um, hey, listen, I, I appreciate all your questions. Brother, I, I, I want to apologize if I responded inappropriately to your question. I, I, I love your question about salvation. I'm the only concerned that if in the midst of talking about whole life discipleship that I made it unclear that there is a, a way of saying yes to following Jesus. So, um, All right, let's pray together. God, thanks for our evening and for the people that have invested in our lives. Father, right now I want to pray specifically for anyone in this room who feels like the equivalent of the woman at the well. Broken flawed, inadequate, unuseful, less than. I pray, Lord, that this story would inspire that student, him or her, to realize that you purposefully chose the least likely person in the village to announce that you had arrived. And I pray that you would give them hope and courage, strength, confidence that you are with them as they share about your kingdom. In Jesus' name.